So we often hear and read uh, Jerusalem in the Bible, and we think that Jerusalem is sort of this metropolis, sort of like Dallas, right? We think that it is uh, 7 million people, but really Jerusalem on average, average like 20,000 people. There are 20,000 regulars in Jerusalem, inhabitants of Jerusalem, except for three times a year. For you see in the Torah, that's uh, the Hebrew Bible, it, it outlined that people from all over the land had to come to Jerusalem for three festivals. And one of those festivals is the festival of Passover. That is uh, when our Jewish brothers and sisters recognize the exodus, right, from Egypt. And Jerusalem would swell to like six times her normal size. So I want you to look around this morning and uh, really look around and you might see some empty pews or some gaps in pews around you. This is what it was normally like in Jerusalem. And then the Passover would happen and it was like this. I want everyone to scoot towards the middle aisle. No, I'm so serious. We're going to do it. Everyone scoot towards the center aisle. Everyone over. Do I really have to come and instruct us? Humphreys, I need you to come all the way over to the center. Yep. Transeps, I can see you. We're going to do it too. Thank you so much. Choir, sorry. Steve already has you sitting like that. Can y'all move to the center aisle? No, you're not gonna move to the center aisle. This is really helpful, especially in our passage that we're about to read. If I would have asked you a few moments ago who your neighbor was, if I would have asked you a few moments who your neighbor was, you would have probably given me the name of the person sitting right next to you. If I asked you right this second who your neighbor is, Who's not your neighbor right this second? Who could you not include if I asked you who your neighbor was? It'd be really difficult. This is what we need to know. Uh, Our passage today is on the Monday of Holy Week. You may have heard of Holy Week. Jesus came into Jerusalem. He sent his disciples to get a colt that was tied up. And Jesus said to his disciples, go, you will find a colt there tied. Tell the master that I am in need of it. And the disciples went to the people who had the colt and said, the Lord is in need of the colt. And you know what they did? They gave Jesus the colt. And Jesus got on that colt and he rode it through the southern gate of Jerusalem. And people lined the streets, and they had palm branches. And do you know what they said? Yeah, that's right. We're Christians. We know this one. Here we go. What did we say? Hosanna in the highest. It's known as Palm Sunday. Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday to waving palm branches. Uh, Then he spends the night with his disciples in Bethany. He comes in on Monday morning. And he goes right to the temple. And do you know what he does? He's asked by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are the religious elite. These are the folks who have been entrusted with all the right answers. They start asking him questions to trap him. And then Jesus answers their questions and they can't trap him. And then he goes to the tables just outside the temple where they exchanged money for uh, 
sacrifices, for animal sacrifices. And what does Jesus do at those tables? That's right. We're getting good at this. He flips them over. And he says, my house shall be a house of worship. Just after he flips over the tables. The Sadducees and the Pharisees and the chief priests in their fancy robes. And the scribes, do we know who the scribes are? Who are the scribes? The lawyers. lawyers. (laughs) Y'all say that like I said something wrong. (laughs) I don't mean that derogatorily. I really don't. The scribes are those who write and interpret the law. The lawyers are all pressed in. Jerusalem has 150,000 people. They can't move. And they ask him this question. I'm going to read it out of the 22nd chapter of Matthew. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest And Jesus said to him, "Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments... Hang all of the law and all of the prophets. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Jerusalem's packed. It's like a carnival. People were celebrating in the streets. People were selling their goods. You could barely move. They were trying to catch Jesus in asking him really theologically sound questions. They wanted to trap him in his own words. And so the religious elite, those uh, who had influence over almost all of society, the priests and the lawyers, those who wrote and enforced the law, crowded in around him. And they asked him, what is the greatest commandment. What we have to remember is the same section of Torah that tells all of the people to be in Jerusalem for Passover is the same section of Torah in which Jesus recites to them. It comes from Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We need to remember these people would have spent lots of time in the synagogue. And we have to remember that this portion of Deuteronomy is actually the beginning of every synagogue worship service. It's called the Shema. If we went to Temple Emmanuel yesterday, our brothers and sisters right down the street, we would have heard their Shabbat service begin this way. Oh, Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. They heard it every single week. And then the second section 
that Jesus recites back to them comes from the Levitical Code, from the 19th chapter of Leviticus. Uh, We have to remember, Leviticus is an instruction for how the people of Israel are supposed to live once they have left exile and and as they have left slavery and gone into exile. It's a whole list of commandments. And then Jesus says to Moses, oh, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds to them with the very words that have called them together. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all other commandments. Jesus, I think, is saying to them, it is one thing to know the right answer. Like, it is one thing to know the proper response to a question. It's an entirely different thing to allow that response to take on flesh in your life. Uh, Raise your hand if you feel like the Pharisees and the Sadducees are being particularly neighborly to Jesus right now. (laughs) Jesus is saying, you're trying to trap me, and yet these words that you risk your life on are not words that you live by. Which begs the question, does it not? Who is your neighbor? And what does it mean to be neighborly? Who taught you uh, what it meant to be a neighbor? Maybe it was your mom or your dad. Maybe they taught you that when uh, someone new moved into your neighborhood. What happened uh, when someone new moved in next door at your house? What did you do? Really? What did you do? You baked cookies. Thank you, Bruce. In my house, we baked banana bread. It was an excuse for us to use rotten bananas, mash them up, (laughs) put them into a loaf with a lot of sugar, and take them next door and say, hi, we're the Ruffners. Our kids are going to annoy you from time to time. We're sorry about it, but we're your neighbors. Maybe it was your grandparents. Maybe it was a teacher. Like when you were a kid in school and you heard that another kid in your grade, uh, their house burned down. This happened to me when I was in high school. Another kid in the ninth grade, his uh, house burned down. And so one of our teachers came together on behalf of the school and said, that kid is not just a ninth grader. That kid doesn't just go to our school. We belong to that kid. That child is ours. So we're going to... As a school, collect food items, we're going to collect clothing, we're going to collect bedding, so that this family, to get resettled, has something. Maybe, if you're of my generation, this is where you learned how to be a neighbor. Maybe, or maybe not. What is that? Mr. Rogers is making a comeback. Rightfully so, we need him. On Thursday this week, I watched an hour and a half of Mr. Rogers' clips. It maybe was one of the most powerful moments of my week because what I came to recognize in my adulthood is Mr. Rogers helped millions of children and their parents and grandparents who were also watching Mr. Rogers with them realize that we actually belong to one another. We belong to, we belong to the teacher who comes into the neighborhood. 
We belong to the architect who stops by Mr. Rogers' house. We belong to the postal worker who's an African-American and is invited to take off his socks and shoes and to cool his heels in the same pool as Mr. Rogers in 1969. We belong to one another in the neighborhood. I learned it from Mr. Rogers, I learned it from my parents, but I also learned it from my home church, what it means to be a neighbor. Uh, My home church didn't look that different than this gathered crowd this morning. Good Presbyterians doing the best they can to try to raise their family and go to youth group and go to school and come to church when they could. But a small group of them uh, created this organization called ACTS, Area Churches Together Serving. They came together with other churches and they said, if we pull our resources, we can make sure that no one in our town will go hungry. Acts began began, uh, as a place where folks could come and get a meal. It's a place where they could come get clothing. It was a place that they could come when they were down on their luck and help pay their light bill when they were out of a job. Acts was and still remains a place that doesn't have an age requirement so all people can serve, even children. I learned it from my home church uh, in the entire month of July. Because in the month of July, that's when the migrant farm workers would make their way up to Aiken County and pick the peach crop. This is what you need to know. One town in Aiken, South Carolina produces more peaches than the entire state of Georgia combined. Yeah, that's me being really proud about South Carolina. My home church would come together every Sunday afternoon in the month of July and have a potluck because we recognize that these migrant farm workers belong to us, that they were the most vulnerable among us. These were men, mostly men, who had traveled thousands of miles away from their family to make a few dollars that they could send back home and support their families. And so my home church, First Church Aiken, South Carolina, would have a potluck so those men could be fed. But then after the potluck, we would take them to Walmart or to CVS and to make sure that they had toiletries. Or we'd take them to the laundromat and make sure that they could clean their clothes so they could start the week with clean clothes. My home church did that not as a political statement, They didn't do it so that we could get our name in the headlines or the Aiken Standard. We didn't do it so they could have their social media pages filled with their good works. They did it because they recognized that those migrant farm workers were our neighbors. We belonged to them. You know, it can feel risky to live like you belong to every person. It can be risky to live like every person is your neighbor. (laughs) Think about it. Every person that you pass on the street this week in Dallas, Texas is your neighbor. Even the really annoying person in your office is your neighbor. The family member who you will get together with in four weeks at Thanksgiving is your neighbor. (laughs) But it can be hard to live that way. 
I think that's why we have to go on global mission trips. We have to get so far outside of our own comfort zones. We have to get so far outside of our structured security so our hearts can be broken open to this truth. Do you know, uh, this is a bipartisan understanding, the most conservative church and the most liberal church in America agree that serving is something we should do. Do you know that 1.5 million Americans this year will go on a global mission project? Do you know that represents two billion with a B dollars in aid every single year? I think that we have to go on global mission projects so that our world can be expanded so we can be returned to ourselves. You know, Mother Teresa diagnosed all the world's problems in this way. Mother Teresa said, we have simply forgotten. We have simply forgotten that we belong to one another. Sometimes we have to get outside of ourselves so the universal can become particular. I'm going to share uh, the most powerful experience of my life of this truth. The church I served uh, right before coming to Preston Hollow was in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, twice a year, Trinity Church would make a journey to the island of Loganov in Haiti. Loganov was uh, just off the coast of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And The island of Loganov was one of the most desolate places on the entire planet. It it is a volcanic rock. It doesn't have any natural flowing water, no streams, no rivers. It also doesn't have any trees because in order to survive on Loganov, you have to cut down all the trees, take the wood, slow burn it to make it charcoal so that you could have something to sell at the market so you can buy food, which means uh, when the rainy season would come, Heavy rains would come and hit the island, and it would wash all the topsoil right off that mountain and cover the reefs surrounding the island. Fish can't live without reefs. And so there were no fish to fish. Twice a year, Trinity Church would go to Loganov to take medical supplies to work on uh, helping build uh, sustainable water wells, to work on helping to rebuild the topsoil. I'll never forget this group of us, eight of us, had gotten in the car at six o'clock in the morning, one of those uh, land cruiser things, and we sat in the back and took a three hour drive up the mountain where people had walked from all over the island to see the one physician on the island. We also helped administer vaccines. We checked on water projects, and then we took the three-hour drive back down to our village. We all needed a chiropractor when we got back. We uh, showered and we walked out of our house. We were going to go get a drink after a long day of work. We were walking right down the middle of this dusty road having a conversation about our day when a woman came running from behind a compound wall and she was yelling, help, 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 help. 
voice haunts me even now. All of us froze. We didn't know what to do. Except for one person, Peter. Peter walked over to that woman, and that woman took his hands. And he said, what can I do to help? And she drug him behind that wall. We stood there stunned. We didn't see Peter for three and a half hours. We didn't see Peter until he walked back into the door. And we said, what was the emergency? He said, uh, that woman was a a local nurse. There was a woman um, in labor. There are a lot of complications. And that nurse knew that if she didn't get help, that she was going to lose the woman and the child. And we all began to weep because the one person who had walked to this woman and asked her if she needed help was Peter Barrett one of the best OBGYNs in all of Atlanta. And so we said, Peter, what happened? He said, I haven't seen some of that medical equipment since medical school. That's the only way I knew how to use any of it. And we asked what you're asking. What happened to the patient and the baby? Like a typical Presbyterian, he said, we worked with what we had. We're going to be okay. And then I asked him, asked him the question. Peter, how many people on this entire island could have done what you did this evening? How many people could have rushed in and done emergency surgery and helped save that mom and that child? How many people on the whole island could have done that? And the deeper truth, I watched it wash right over him. His eyes filled up with tears. And he said, I think I'm the only one. And I said, Peter, you mean to tell me we were walking down a road at 6 o'clock in the evening and a woman cried out for help and she happened to run up to the only person on this whole island who could help her? And he said, yeah, I guess so. Friends, the invitation to this life The invitation to this life and to this faith is to love God with every fiber of your being, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, to love God so much that it spills out from your own being 
and into the lives of your neighbor. I would venture to say that if you have ever been in a place of great need in your life, and I'm looking around this room having sat at some of your bedsides, and this is true, if you have ever been in a moment of great need in your life, someone has been a neighbor to you. They have loved you, cared for you. So the invitation to us is to live it in our lives and in this world. So what is the greatest commandment, they asked him? To love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments hang all of the laws and all of the prophets. May it be so in our lives. Let us pray. For the way in which this community has taught us how to love, O oh God, for the ways in which this community has stretched us, encouraged us, walked alongside of us, we give thanks. We pray that we would be a community, O oh God, that would continue to share your love with the world. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.